0: Welcome to Moving the Needle, casual conversations about ways, big and small, to impact student learning. Brought to you by the Faculty Center for Teaching and Learning at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. I'm Erin Hager, let's move the needle. Welcome back to Moving the Needle. You are in for a treat today. We have the honor of speaking with UMB's 2023 Educator of the Year, Dr. Christy Chang. If you're like me, you're going to come away from this conversation impressed, inspired, and just delighted by Dr. Chang and her commitment to her students and faculty on this campus. Dr. Chang teaches genetics in three departments in the School of Medicine here at UMB. In addition to her own research and publications, she also mentors junior faculty and postdocs, developing their grant writing skills and confidence. In today's conversation, Dr. Chang describes what she hopes her students get from her courses well beyond their time in school. She also talks about her engaging approach to teaching through storytelling and analogies. And she tells us a story about how her students gifted her with one of her most prized possessions. We'll also hear her deep concern about her students' mental health and how she normalizes the topic of mental health in her classroom. Dr. Chang, welcome to Moving the Needle and congratulations on this award.
1: Thank you. I'm really um, honored to be invited. I have listened to other podcasts, and I really enjoy the other offerings. So thank you for including me.
0: It is our pleasure. I wonder if we could start by having you tell us a bit about your journey as an educator. Was there a moment when you realized that that teaching was something that you really enjoyed? Yes. While in graduate school, getting
1: my Ph.D., Uh, We were required to teach for one year um, at the hopkins Homewood campus. We were asked to get one lecture and supervise weekly labs. And um, for some reason, we were taught extensively how to prevent cheating, but we were not at all prepared on how to be a good teacher. So um, after that experience, I really enjoyed interacting with students and had a great time, and um, and the student voted me as their favorite TA of the year. At that point, I thought, wow, if I enjoy teaching Hopkins pre-med, I will probably enjoy teaching everyone and anyone. So, um, so I did seek out opportunity to do more teaching and to design
0: curriculum once I became a faculty, and here I am. That's so wonderful. I think the... Um the culture now is, is really changing toward providing graduate students more opportunity to teach and more preparation mm-hmm. to teach. Um, and it sounds like that's something that, uh, that you appreciated as well as just having the opportunity to do that.
1: Yes. And I wish, um, more graduate school do that. Like you are doing for our students. Um, most well-funded programs have their students on research assistance. Um, but teaching is such a, I would say joyful part of our work and then I wish more students are introduced to it and that they don't see it as like if research doesn't work out, I go teach um, at a small college. That career track um, is very rewarding and highly competitive and then um, it's not really the backup plan at all and I really, work very hard to make sure our students know that. So thank you for doing what you do.
0: Oh, well, thank you. Yes, it's, it is such a valuable profession and an art and a science into itself. And and mm-hmm. it's so wonderful to be able to, to talk to like-minded educators like you about it. Um, so speaking of your teaching, um, how would you describe your u- unique teaching style or approach?
1: Um, I would say I go for a very... Um, Organized structure lecture. People like information presented to them in a specific ways that our brain found highly structured information more satisfying than things thrown at us piecemeal. So I tend to do that and then I use uh, like what, where, how many, and why approach to organize my material. So a good example would be when I teach about. Mutations and what it does to our body and um, diseases and so forth. I start with where is the mutation? Is it in the protein coding region, the non protein coding region? How big is the mutation? One nucleotide, thousands and thousands of nucleotides, and um, then how many? There's only um, one out of 5,000 people have it or one out of three people have it. And then so I go through this and and see if there's anything against expectation or is consistent with students' expectation. And of course, I pick example that they get a mixture of both and then when it's against the expectation, I teach them um, what's a likely explanation mechanism behind that and often that lead to some new and cool biology they were not expecting to learn that day. But it connects all the ideas that they have from other lectures under one umbrella or through the lens of one single disease. And then that makes um, their learning a more enriched experience.
0: That's so interesting. So it sounds like what I'm hearing is there's a framework for the mm-hmm. way that the information is presented. But because of that framework, students have the ability to be surprised or amazed by what they're about to hear because it's um, they, they've got that structure to support them and then they can be curious and excited about some of the things that might not be expected.
1: Yes, and um, for instance, when I teach, let's like, say environmental nutritional factor, and I'll give them a very elegant um, experiment done in mice, and they will see that's no way we can ethically do such experiment in humans. But there are historical examples when that actually happened. So instead of um, induce a diabetic condition in mice, I show them how during World War II, the Dutch famine actually caused massive starvation, and we can see the epigenetic signature Generations later, so um, and also um, severely obese um, individuals are going under they are undergoing bariatric surgery, and that dramatic weight loss is also another natural experiment um, that we can. It's not an experiment with it intentionally, but it's a totally ethical way to get to the kind of data that we got in mice. So I think they are. Um, A lot of parallels in what I do. I give them two scenarios that looks very different on the outside, and then what's underneath will surprise them and make learning more interesting that way.
0: That's so interesting, and I think that framework is so important because when everything feels new and everything feels... um, like they don't, students may not necessarily know how to structure so much information that's new all at once, but you're providing them that, um, which lets them make meaning out of these um, examples that you're sharing with them.
1: Yeah, and it's also tied to things they can relate to, right? Um, they have grandparents who um, may be great-grandparents, I, I forgot the, uh, how many time has passed, um, that have some of the historical events. They were part of their family history. Yeah. And then um, that um, in some way, we are all living some kind of experiment.
0: Yeah. And so it makes that personal connection to them. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Well, what would you say are your teaching values? What do you things? you know, we can think about so many things as teachers. You know, so much feels important. But how do you focus on the things that matter to you?
1: So, um, There are two things (laughs) that I try very hard to do. One is that um, I want to teach them genetics. I want to teach them about um, personalized medicines and all this. But what's even more important as an educator is I teach them how to think scientifically. So how to set up an experiment, um, know what's um, good data, bad data, and no data, right? Uh, How to have good controls in the experiment. And I think some of the things that are happening in class, it's not just helping them to be a successful graduate student and good, um, good experimental data, publish and graduate. It's also a teach them how to live a good life and have good interpersonal relationship. And so that's the hidden uh, piece. So I will use, so, so very often, uh, because they, these are students in their 20s, um, I use dating relationship, romantic relationship a lot um, when I make an analogy. So I would say, um, what would be a data that support your hypothesis, review your hypothesis, or offer the um, information out? So let's say the hypothesis is you have a good marriage, a good relationship. So supportive evidence would be your partner check on your mother and bring you a cup of tea every night, right? Something that refutes that hypothesis would be um, there's a secret bank account you didn't know about, right? No data at all would be your partner had a really long day doing a very complicated, demanding um, experiment and did not text you at all or a vicious neighbor makes uncritical comments. So those are no information (laughs) versus information that actually review or support your hypothesis. And it's very important that students know that when they look at their data every day. And the second thing um, I care about a lot is I want students to know how deeply scientific um, discoveries and technological innovations actually impact real life mm. and how our society is evolving. So some example would be nuclear weapon, right? or AI or genomic editing, um, invention of insulin, and um, things that really percolate and change how um, people live and then they can happen within one lifetime um, in one's career, so I have one lecture where I tell them how for hundreds of years, nothing absolutely was done besides giving a new name to a particular syndrome and have a better clinical description. And, and then at the onset of Human Genome Project, how discovery accelerated. So within my lifetime, we went from classification and no, nothing at all, to gene-based therapy. And babies who used to die very early on, almost all of them before age of one, and cannot ever hold their head up, are now riding horses. And so those stories are. Um, some of them you can say it's exception, but um. And not always that case. They are warning. I can give them many many examples, and I want them to know their daily work you know, um, going to the dark room, look at your film and go, oh, another film experiment, um, actually add up to incredible changes in how we do, um, how we um, carry out medical care and the quality of life that we change.
0: Wow. That sounds so inspiring. Like it, what I'm hearing is reminding your students sort of where they are in this moment in time um, mm-hmm. and the impact that that this work, even when it's frustrating, can have on future generations.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. So we start with um, clinical descriptions, molecular mechanisms, to the latest um, gene-based therapy, and then I show them the timeline of all the th- progress um, and from the late nineties to now.
0: That's amazing. So. You mentioned uh, in that description of your values, your use of storytelling. And in the write up after you won Educator of the Year um, at UMB, wh- one of the things that came through from your students is how much they love your use of storytelling. Um, why do you think that telling stories is an effective teaching approach?
1: Mm-hmm. Storytelling is such an ancient and powerful craft, right? So um, it's what we used before the invention of written language, right? This is storytelling, it's how um, family laws and information are passed either vertically or horizontally, right, throughout the community and cross um, generations. And um, it has a very emotional component, and we know from all kinds of cognitive studies that we remember things if we assign meaning or we are emotionally moved by it. So it doesn't have to be the Dutch famine and something that inspires sympathy and compassion. It could be even just humor. Um, it could be um, curiosity. Right, and so I try to work in as many of those elements. And and I say I would say I do any I do not do it intentionally every time. I just come across an example that I thought, oh, this will be a really elegant way to explain a particular concept. And then in hindsight, I would go, oh, this is a great story on its own, even if I'm not teaching genetics and preparing them for an exam. <laughs> so. Um, and you, you can see this demonstrated so often by politicians, right? They will spend one minute talking about um, numbers and facts about inflation. And then five minutes talking about a particular family in Minnesota, right? It's the, oh, this lady named Mary who made the best cookie in the world and how inflation impacted her, right? So because that's how um, politicians and I think effective speakers know those stories will have a much more impact than just giving them compelling numbers.
0: Yes, I, that's absolutely true, and the 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 data supporting that 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 learning connection between when we feel something. Um, and and retaining that information is is such an important tool that an educator can use in their in their collection of things that they do to share information.
1: Mm-hmm. And it makes it much more fun for me. Yes, <laughs> so.
0: and I think students respond when they know that their instructors are having fun as well. I think so.
1: Yes, definitely. That's another I-
0: emotional connection that they're making.
1: Right. Yes, I'm so easily amused. And um, so the classroom interaction um, is something I particularly enjoy. And I think that um, back and forth, whenever someone asks a question, it's another opportunity for me to go off script and be a three-dimensional person. And then that invites students also to... Um, engage with me more authentically. Yeah,
0: I love how you frame that because I think sometimes when we come to a class and we, we've we prepared and we have a plan, those questions can sometimes be seen as a deviation or taking mm-hmm. time away from completing this plan. But the way you're framing it is this question is really an opportunity um, to, mm-hmm. to invite that connection and to create a deeper connection with that student and then ultimately the whole class.
1: Yes, and then I also um, make my um, success every semester differently, right? It's not that everybody um, score above certain number that makes me believe I had a great semester. I want that. But also the students who are quiet, who, you know, and ask your questions. And someone who uh, made the connection that I did not make yet and um, that I got to engage them not just individually but forming a community and that's also something wonderful i enjoy
0: oh that's wonderful well to go back to that um idea of storytelling as a way of uh creating connection i wonder if you might tell our listeners a story maybe something about a a memorable teaching experience that you had
1: of course so um one year i was teaching um the difference between genetics and epigenetics, and I use an example um, that have not just genetics, epigenetics, also um, mate preference and sexual selection. Um, anytime you can bring those in, students' ears perk up a little bit. <laughs> so, so the story is that some species of finch, um, females will select male. Um, Partners based on the yellow um, pigment in their feather. So the darker the yellow, um, it means they have a lot of beta-carotene. So the idea is that they, that male represent someone with good nutritional status, who is genetically more fit and a more ideal um, partner to reproduce with. And it turned out the female finches are so intelligent They could tell the difference between current nutritional status versus nutritional status from previous season. So I remind the students, this is because if you're going to select a mate, purely because if they're wearing a Rolex watch, then you should know how to tell a fake one from a real one. And the second day, um, a student presented me with a drawing of a bird wearing a relaxed watch. <laughs> and then um, what was absolutely lovely was that not only he drew, he did the drawing, but he had text the whole class, or at least many of them were texting each other the whole evening to get all the details right and to <gasps> provide him with information to the little things to include in his drawing.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: So um,
0: needless to say, the drawing is among my most precious possessions. Yes, and they use that as an opportunity to deepen their own community within the class mm-hmm. setting themselves.
1: Yes, you know, they are first-year um, PhD students uh, in different programs. The fact that um, they came together, it's their scientific interests, their sense of humor, and their artistic abilities, right, all coming together. Um,
0: in creating this gift for me oh that's amazing and i love too the way that a story like that or as uh, an experience like that becomes part of the shared vocabulary of a particular group of students or a particular community you can mm-hmm. go back to it always and say it's like the bird with the rolex or it's like you know
1: mm-hmm. yes i i imagine um you know they're telling that story to their family and friends and bored them endlessly or entertain them yes. <laughs> successfully, so.
0: Yes, the ripple effect of that. Oh, that's a mm-hmm. wonderful story. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm wondering, uh, as, as you um, think about your career as, a, as an educator, how would you say that you're still growing? What topics are on your mind um, as you think about our students today in this generation?
1: So, um... I think as I mature as an educator, I am um, more um, aware and uh, more committed to frame um, the material I want to teach through a historical societal lens. So um, instead of teaching just about a genetic disease, um, I will point out um, giving this. Um, the same mutation or similar mutation that cause very similar um, disease, but one in United States, another one let's say in Sardinia, Italy. So where there is a um, universal public um, healthcare system and the population is homogeneous versus heterogeneous and there's a mandate that legalized reproductive rights. What happened? to the patient's actual quality of life and the population's um, awareness and um, prejudice or lack of against people who have the disease. So I try to bring those elements. And then also um, I am more aware that um, students, um, I should see them not as cross-sectional interaction, but a longitudinal interaction, that um, it's a very competitive process to get one's um, PhD or MD or some other um, graduate training that um, our students currently, and historically students have, graduate students, um, um, are more likely to have severe mental illness than their counterpart outside the graduate school. And this generation is hyper-aware of their mental illness. So you will hear a conversation hardly goes by without somebody, say, boundary or gaslighting. Um, So they are hyper-aware, but they don't necessarily have the tools to really prevent mental illness and then to take care of themselves in that way. Um, The fact that um, we are taught very early on to brush our teeth, Right, but we don't always teach students and young people how to do the same for their mental health that they do for their physical well-being. So um, this is becoming something I care deeply about. So I just um, developed a lecture on burnout prevention for um, residents and fellows, and then I have been doing things with the graduate students that I want to do more of it, um, because when those issues go unaddressed, and students either have a horrible time struggling all through graduate school or they dropped out. And then, when they do, um, the ones who dropped out are disproportionately women or people of color. And we know what that does to um, the diversity of our workforce and representation. So I, this is becoming something really near and dear to my heart, and I want to do much more um, with this issue um, in this part of my career.
0: Oh wow! Yes, I, I, think that's absolutely spot on. Just as kind of taking the pulse of of where we are as a society, with increased awareness and um, and evidence of of this mental health crisis that that we're in right now, and and. It sounds like you're really weaving that into your values as an educator.
1: Yes. Um, actually, a few years ago, I went back to graduate school to get my master in professional um, counseling. So um, now I actually see um, some students in my, um, when I um, practice as a therapist. And then I want to have individual clinical experience. And then I want to take what I learned and what's in literature to provide something for our groups of students.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. And what a commitment to your students that you went and got additional education to be able to better serve them.
1: I think it's good that, um, everyone get used to the idea we're lifelong learners, right? I actually saw that as a gift to myself to being in my fifties and, um, to learn something in a structural way again, <laughs> to have someone say, this is what you need to learn. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, I really appreciate that, having that experience and then um, how he adds another piece to um, my everyday life. That's
0: wonderful. What What advice would you give to other faculty members who see this um Mental health crisis that we're in—they're concerned about their students' mental health, but they might not be able to get a degree in clinical professional counseling. What advice would you have for faculty who are who are aware of these issues but not quite sure how how best to support students?
1: The best place to start is just to normalize it, right? That it's not a taboo; it's something where well, people should feel open that they can speak about openly and honestly. Um, so MIH offer actually some training for uh, mentors and advisors on how to do this. Uh, just practice the for let's say suicide assessment um, to assess students um, who are clearly depressed and to see if they are suicidal ideation and which is something that's really, really um, difficult to talk about, right? But it's it's like any exposure therapy, if you will. We can build up tolerance. So um, I have gone from, oh, no, I can never, ever do this, to be really, you know, matter of fact, and just ask people about suicide ideation, if that's um, an element that we should be concerned about, and then to put support around it. Right? And um, also I think we can all be more open with challenges that we face. And so a lot of time, um, mental illness, they don't start in vacuum, right? Some people have some genetically inherited susceptibility and then they, they are aware that they grew up in a family where they didn't have as much support or have as much a, a healthy environment as others. And it's usually some other stressful events or multiple stressful events, and then you see the onset of their symptoms. And often that um, if we believe um, those external challenges will paralyze us, then we become discouraged. And um, and you know we start to lose hope, right? Our confidence goes down, our self-image and all that um, become altered. But if, if we realize that um, everybody are walking around with some combination of strength and weakness, right? And then, um, and it's also more support, more compassion, more flexibility in the system. That even when really challenging events or a struggle with any kind of physical or mental illness happen, it doesn't mean we are off our track permanently, right? It might be a little detour. And if you interview um, a bunch of successful scientists, almost no one's career is linear. And then not having a linear career path is actually the norm. So I would actually just share what happened in my life. Um, I would tell them national or um, regional studies about how often a young scientist expected to have a very stressful events um, that make them reconsider their career choices and then that they are not things that will um, push us off our path you just made the path to get to where we want to go more interesting Oh,
0: I love that framing of that Um, it's, it's just it's such a wonderful perspective thank you for sharing that I've I've, in my work, um, I, like you, I'm I'm starting to think a lot about um, about mental health and stress, uh, particularly from the faculty lens, because I'm seeing a lot of signs of of burnout, of exhaustion, of overwhelm, um, you know, in in the university community on the faculty side, and. You know, I think about all the competing pressures that faculty have with with research, securing grants, you know, teaching expectations, service commitments, their own personal lives and families and things going on. How would you say that your perspective that you just shared with us as you thinking about the student population, you know, what supports might we put in place for faculty as well?
1: So that's the other hat I wear on campus is that I direct to career development program for um, junior faculties. And um, I work very hard to change the idea, like, I'm good at this, I'm not good at that, when it's, this is a skill I need to acquire, and this is a skill I need to improve, or I'm actually competent already with this skill set. Right, and what um, we are giving, responsibility to teach, to do research, to secure external funding. And some of these metrics are much easier to measure, right? So you can um, definitely have a very secure path to promotion and all that if you have a solid funding history. Um, so I um, made it my mission to unpack how to write a good grant to people who has not had that um, funding mentors. And this is you know, by no means a criticism of mentors. There are a lot of things we do um, instinctively well. That doesn't mean we know how to unpack it to teach it to someone else. So um, a few years ago, um, MH had um, started prepare grant writing coaches to support smaller universities. Unlike University of Maryland, Baltimore, that does not have a significant career development office. So I did that for minority faculties elsewhere. And now I brought that skill back to Maryland and um, let the faculty know this very stressful, daunting thing they expected to do on top of their clinical skills and research skill. Um, The green writing skill can be unpacked and it's um, absolutely possible to learn, um, systematically, and then I will help them do that.
0: Wow. So you really take this commitment to, um, to education with such a broad lens, right? With, you you know, faculty are part of that community. Your students are part of that community. And I think our entire community is just so lucky that we have you uh, as one of us so that you can share these really important perspectives with all of us.
1: Thank you so much. Um, I feel very fortunate that University of Maryland Baltimore allowed me to have all these platforms, right, that um, when I decided to step away from research, um, um, I found ways to have a really, really enjoyable, impactful um, chapter that I have um, no way expected in the beginning. Yeah,
0: yeah, your own journey. Um. You know, just all of the different twists and turns in your own career path. And it it sounds like it has been such a rewarding one.
1: Thank you. And I think if it, it, this is true for many, many of us, right? Um, some people are too dizzy to share their story. I don't mind at all. So here we are.
0: <laughs> well, we are the better for it. And I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to talk with us today, Christy. And congratulations again on this wonderful, well-deserved award.
1: Thank you so much. And thank you for doing what you do for our community.
0: Thank you for joining us today on Moving the Needle. Visit us at umaryland.edu slash fctl to hear additional episodes, leave us feedback, or suggest future topics. We'd love to hear from you.